Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 34. I'm reminded of Jesus when he taught people, and sometimes it would go a little bit longer than expected. He would tell his disciples to give them something to eat. Well, elders and deacons, give them something to eat today. (laughs) If you're getting a little tired and you need to stand up for a moment, that is okay. The tragedy in Nashville hit close to me. I hear of shootings and violence all the time in the news. And to be honest, if you wanted to, you could fill your mind with remorse and tragedy every moment of every day. And so I do, you know, let a lot of things just pass on by. But the fact that this shooting happened in a Christian school of a PCA church hits me. Three nine-year-old children killed, one being the daughter of a PCA pastor. I don't know him personally, but I'm probably certain that we've been at General Assembly together, worshiping together. Shooter. 28-year-old woman, former student of the school. That hits me home, too. The thought that someone that I might have ministered to would shoot one of my children hurts. The families of the victims and the family of the shooter need our prayers. That hits me too. I don't know much about the details of this story. I haven't been online reading every detail. But those parents sent her to a Christian school. I can't imagine what it would have been like if it had been my child who committed those shootings. We need to pray for these families. Thank you, Dan, for doing that today. Oh, that God would work through the evil of his this day for his glory and the good of his people. And as I thought about today's sermon, today is Palm Sunday. Could have just gone through a normal Palm Sunday message. The singing is about all you get today of Palm Sunday stuff, but you you did get that. But one of the challenges of our lives is how do we process evil? How should we feel about the evil in Nashville and how should we respond to the evil in Nashville? There are too many things to say. I will not say them all here today. But we are going through Genesis 34 because I believe that Genesis 34 deals with some of the same struggles that are happening in Nashville. I was actually rather amazed as I studied the atrocity of Dinah being raped and the murder of a a whole village because of that, how some of the same issues that we're dealing with today went on thousands of years ago. 
How should we feel in the face of evil? How should we respond to evil? Those are the, those are the questions. And so with that in mind, we dig into Genesis 34. Jacob has returned to the promised land. God's promises to Abraham are that the land of promise will be a place of blessing. But instead of a land of pure delight, Jacob finds evil and pain and sorrow. Genesis 34 records a very dark day in Jacob's family. Follow along with me in your Bibles. I will just read the first four verses and comment, and then we'll move through this systematically. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her. And humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, in those four verses, my heart does a bit of a whiplash. We're told that Dinah went out to see the woman of the women of the land, sort of vague. In some sense, she was intrigued by the culture around her. She was curious. She wanted to know what life was like outside of her family. By the way, not that her family was a place of all peace. We know that. But the question is, should we fault Dinah? thought about this quite a bit. I I think maybe, but not overly. She was naive, and she didn't understand just how evil the world was around her. But it's clear Dinah does not bring this evil upon herself. We also need to ask, how do we think about Jacob? Jacob. Is he at fault for letting Dinah go? Could he not have kept her under lock and key, taken more precautions? I know as parents you would be thinking that if this atrocity happened in your household. Well, one thread of this story is that Jacob is not able to protect his family from evil. But at the same time, Jacob's failure to protect Dinah is not the point any more than Dinah's naivete. It's not Dinah or Jacob who are portrayed as evil in the story. Of course, stories like this will naturally increase our wariness, and that may be okay. But it is impossible in this life to be shielded from all evil. Hear that. It is not something you can entirely prevent. I heard just last night a call of an atrocity 
that I just would not have expected. I cannot tell you the details of it, but you just think, oh, Lord, how does this happen? Bad things, terrible things happen to us in this life. We are told that Shechem is the son of Hamor, the Hivite. He is a prince in the land. He is royalty and he is accustomed to getting what he wants. He sees sees Dinah and seizes Dinah. He overpowers her against her will. He lies with her. He rapes her. He violates her honor and humiliates her. Dinah has not brought shame upon herself. She has been shamed by Shechem. Oh, he may have been influenced by his culture. He may have even believed that what he did was not really that bad. But his personal feelings are not the point. His actions toward Dinah are evil. But as evil as Shechem's initial actions are, your head kind of does a little whiplash because the very next statement, he surprises us. He doesn't abandon Dinah. There is some honor in his heart. He has some affection for her, and he wants to marry her. He's a prince, and so he goes to his dad to approach Dinah's father. He says, Dad, make this happen. And it says, don't, and I think, want you to he, not be fooled by the wording, get me this girl, because Dinah is still in his home. You'll learn that later. She hasn't left. She's still in his home. He just, he's forcibly kidnapped her. He's got her under his possession, but he wants his dad to go and make it legal. And at this point in the story, we as the reader are supposed to feel something. And the question is, how are we supposed to feel about this evil that has occurred? In a moment, we'll also try to understand how we're supposed to respond to it. Genesis 34 verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, meaning Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Not a whole lot said about this, but I cannot read this without going, what? Where's the vitriol? Where is the anguish? Where is the, the anger? Where is the indignation? I think Jacob's response is disappointing, frustrating. I'm not ready to blame him as a coward, but it does seem like he should have responded being more gripped to the heart. It's significant that throughout this entire chapter he is called Jacob rather than Israel. 
In some sense, Jacob has done incredible things in the last couple chapters, right? He's wrestled with God. He's, he's, he's gained blessing through his faith. I mean, he is a hero, and it, in the, particularly in the Old Testament, but particularly in Genesis. Every time you think that someone is, has arrived and they have, they have been like this uh, almost messianic figure, the Bible is intent on disappointing us in him. Jacob's not the villain, but he is not the Messiah either. Now, Jacob is an old man. He is practical. He realizes, even if I had indignation, I'm not going to do much about it. So, there he is. But while Jacob is waiting for his sons to come in, Hamor comes to him, Shechem's dad. We see this in verses 6 and 7. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the, the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now you contrast Jacob's reaction with that of the, son, the brothers. They are indignant. They are burning with righteous anger. And honestly, my heart resonates with the brothers at this point. What they feel is appropriate. I believe that Moses actually inserts his own judgment about their feelings because he says that this thing should not be done in Israel. Well, there is no land of Israel at this time. It's a land of Canaan, and they're just, you know, Jacob's got a little tiny portion that he bought. But it's not his land. It's not the land of Israel yet. But Moses inserts it because he wants his readers during his day to understand this should not happen in God's place. God's standard is that women should be treated with dignity and respect. What Shechem has done has been done is outrageous. It is outrageous in any time and in any place, but it is certainly not appropriate for God's holy people living in God's holy land. So I tell you here today that we should be indignant in the face of evil. It is an appropriate feeling to feel indignant. And I want us to state this clearly. God is never indifferent to evil. The final judgment will be driven by God's indignation against evil. Now, these feelings of righteous anger are what drives the rest of the story. And you must hear the next statement. Righteous anger does not always lead sinful men to righteous actions. Verses 8 through 10. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. 
Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. This, this statement is spoken not just to Jacob but to the brothers as well. They're all in the room together. And you have to understand in this speech that Hamor minimizes the evil that has been done. In essence, he is saying, don't react too strongly to my son's actions. Boys will be boys. He really does care for Dinah. Let's just forget the whole thing and be friends. And what is more, he then says, let's not just have Shechem and Dinah be married. Let's actually create a policy so that your people and our people can mix together and be one. You see, basically he wants to ignore the evil. He wants to to put the evil under the rug. Forget about it. Move on. And I've told you already, but I'll tell you again, God never sweeps evil under the rug. You might think that. Evil people may seem to get away with it, but I'm telling you, God never sweeps evil under the rug. The temptation to mix with the Canaanites is also relevant to the Israelites under Moses. Basically, God tells the Israelites or, uh, through Moses, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their sons, their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. What God is saying is that there are two issues going on. There was a great evil here, but there's even even more enduring and intense evil if you actually mix. Not because of racial issues, not because one's Canaanite and not, because there are different gods whom they follow. Remember just a week ago, Jacob had finally come to the place where he says, Yahweh is my God. Now he's being tempted to make an alliance with people who call on other gods. As horrendous as the crime that Shechem has committed against Dinah, the danger of Jacob's family joining themselves to foreign gods is even worse. You wonder how Jacob is going to respond, but before he even can even respond, Shechem gives his own appeal in verses 11 and 12. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. This is a very important uh, uh, statement that he makes. If you were not familiar with the uh, Mosaic law in Deuteronomy, you would you just go right past it. You just don't get it. But if you're aware of the Mosaic law, you understand that what he is doing 
is in accordance with the Mosaic law. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and they shall be his wife. Because he has violated her, he may not divorce her all her days. Now you may not understand that law. You may not like that law. But that law was designed to protect women from being abused and thrown away. I could say much more on that. Shechem is just not an Israelite. He may be trying to do some, some good here and, and even in accordance with the, with the law do what's right if he were an Israelite, but he's not. He's a pagan. He's worshiping other gods. But here's the real remorse of this story. There's an opportunity right here. Could he not be explained to how to become an Israelite? Could he not have been told at this moment, oh, you know, we serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and let me tell you about him, and we need to repent of our sins, and we need to trust in Yahweh, and you can be brought into our family. We're not just going to mix as two different peoples, but maybe you could come to us and become an Israelite, a true Israelite, through repentance and faith. Jacob is again silent. We don't even know what he's thinking at this moment. But then what happens? The zeal, the righteous indignation of the brothers blinds them to any opportunity of calling this man to repentance and faith. Verses 13 to 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are, be every male, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Understand here, this is a true low point of this story. When you leave here today and you go back, take your bulletin and you read the purpose again of the sacramental sign that we just did in our, in our order of worship earlier. These brothers care about nothing but getting their own revenge. Dinah has been defiled and they have to defend that honor and they could care less about anything else. But while God is sympathetic to their anger, he does not approve their response. Their response is evil. They take the covenant sign of circumcision, which should have been used to instruct people in their need of righteousness, their need of forgiveness, their need of cleansing, their hope of those things, and the promises of blessing that are in that covenant sign. And they turn it into a way to deceive and to kill and to destroy. Bruce Wolke says it well. 
They sacrilegiously and reprehensibly empty the holy covenant sign of its religious significance, commitment by faith to Abraham's God, and abuse it to inflict vengeance. That is right on. And by doing so, they they indicate their own lack of respect for the covenant. And I'm telling you that this sort of activity is rampant in the world. One one act of, of injustice, now I am free to do whatever I want in retaliation of that. I don't care if what I do is unjust or not. I can do it because of the injustice that was done to me. And it just keeps ratcheting up and up and up. Two wrongs do not make a right. You should have been taught that as a kid. Evil does not justify evil. Sadly, the deception works. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he he was the most honored of all his father's house. It's not by accident that that Moses again tells us about Shechem's delight in Dinah. He could have reminded us at that moment of his foulness. He doesn't. And you know what? We have no no way to know if Shechem was being genuinely wanting to care for Dinah at this point or not because he's never given the opportunity to. So Hamor... And his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised. As they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Sometimes I've read some commentators on this, and they say, see, they just wanted to get from from Israel. They weren't really trying to be honorable in this. I just think he's being honest. you got to give the whole town incentive to do this. And he says, look, we, this could be a good thing. Positive, this capitalism at work, right? I mean, this, we give them ours, they give us theirs. We go back, we trade, we have a good deal. And they convinced the whole city. I don't know how many of them there are. If you don't know much about circumcision, in a, in a child, it's not a big deal. In an adult, it's a big deal. Recovery would take time. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. All the brothers are included in the deception. Simeon and Levi are the executioners. They are full brothers, meaning they have the same mom as well as dad. Their indignation is probably hotter than the rest. 
Thankfully, this is an important little tidbit for us. Thankfully, we are not given a graphic depiction of how they carried out this massacre. Keep that in mind as you, uh, I want to see what happened. But we are told something about it. We are told that it occurred while they felt secure. It is at the moment that they should have felt secure because Israel had given them their word. And in the security, the false security of their deception, that these men are killed. How many wives lost their husbands on that day? How many children lost their fathers? This was a premeditated murder carried out by God's people. We should not feel good about this. We should not be saying, oh, they're getting what they deserved. The actions of Simeon and Levi should break our hearts. History is full of such stories. I have the picture of Geronimo on my, on my uh, wall in my office. Geronimo murdered hundreds of families that were innocent settlers. Why did he do it? Because someone murdered his family. And he was burning hot with righteous indignation. Now, I say that not to condemn Geronimo. I think later in life he felt the remorse of what he did and he actually repented and trusted in Christ. I tell you that this is something that can be repeated in history over and over and over again. Verses 34, or chapter 34, 27 to 29. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and pundled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. This is a dark day. And I don't think they even know how dark it is. They think they're just doing what's right. They're they're God's executioners. Well, if this is an evil response, what is the right response? They might have appealed to Shechem to be punished and Dinah released. They might have sought God's face in prayer. Things that Dan told us that we need to do and the governor of Tennessee said to do. Now we are told that God does appoint civil authorities to punish evil in the world, even among unbelievers. It's just that Simeon and Levi were not authorized to do what they did. They were not proper legal authorities. In the natural situation, it was right and good for the sheriff's deputies to go in and take this woman down to prevent further evil. And had they not even taken her down, if she had been captured alive, it would have been right and good for the justice system to prosecute her.
But Simeon and Levi are not in that position of authority. This actual raises another question that's probably not even on your radar at this moment, but I have to deal with it because it's in Scripture. And you know what? The world attacks us for this other situation that's in Scripture. The question we have to ask is this. How are the actions of the brothers, which are atrocious, different than the actions of Joshua coming into the promised land? When God actually commands to wipe out everybody. I mean, the world would... I mean, they they know that verse. You may not deal with it every day, but but, uh, they know it against us. How are we supposed to be fine with Joshua's conquering in the promised land and not fine with the actions of Simeon and Levi? It's not an easy question. In the end, God will judge every man. No one will escape his judgment. God's righteous indignation against every evil must result in a just punishment of every sin. You see, you understand that on the day of judgment, Shechem will stand before God. And on the day of judgment, Simeon and Levi will stand before God. No one will be able to stand long. And no one will stand in their own righteousness. And as terrifying as it sounds when you just hear, I am going to stand before a holy God naked and exposed, as terrifying as that sounds, my sense of justice demands it. Can we honestly call God good if he allows evil to go unpunished? Can we honestly say he's good if he just indifferent, kind of like Jacob was? Your heart craves for a day of perfect justice. A day of reckoning. In some way, if you understand your sin, in some way you should have a a righteous indignation about yourself. No one will make it through that day except by Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He is the one who has borne all of the Father's righteous indignation upon himself so that it wouldn't be upon you. You see, what is occurring, and this is hard to get, But what is occurring when Joshua conquers the land is a foreshadow of the final judgment. And you have to understand that that God does this as a means of of warning us that this day is coming. He doesn't want you to do it all the time yourself. He's just saying it's going to happen. This judgment is going to happen. And it just so happens that the day of judgment will occur simultaneously with God's people in Jesus Christ entering the promised land. And so God foreshadows that in Joshua. 
In fact, God had already prophesied it in Abraham's day and said, listen, the reason why you don't just do it willy-nilly, the reason why that you don't just take vengeance when you want, because it says here in Genesis 15, 16, um, the iniquity of the Amorites, that's all the Canaanites, is not yet complete. And what's that telling us? That's telling us that when Joshua does come in, it is a, a foreshadowing of the final judgment. But it's not yet the final judgment, but God needs something there to help us understand that this final judgment is going to happen. And you also need to understand that when it does happen, it will be done according to perfect justice. How do I know when somebody's sins are complete? Do you know that? I don't know that, but God does. You see, we're in the New Testament. We're in a day of grace. We're in a day when God is calling people to repentance. But it's only calling people to repentance in the context that a coming judgment will occur. This is why in Romans, which is part of our scripture reading, I'll read it again. Repay no one evil for evil. See, that statement makes no sense if there's not going to be a judgment day. See, if there's no judgment day, then you've got to do it now. Get it done. But if there is a judgment day, you don't have to do it now. Not because you're ignoring justice, but because you know God will do it righteously. And you will not. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. See, that doesn't sound like God's going to sweep evil under the rug. Sounds like he's going to deal with it. And what I would do is call people to repentance because only through repentance and faith in Christ will they ever escape that day. As Christians, you should have a strong indignation against evil. We should want to live in a society where civil authorities carry out the laws justly. But we should also want the redemption of those deserving wrath. The final verses of chapter 34 leave us empty. I'm, I'm coming to a conclusion here. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I'm going to be destroyed, both I and my household. And then they respond, Should they treat our sister like a prostitute? I mean, you are so disappointed in Jacob at this point. He's weak, cares more for the welfare of his family than he does for justice. His reaction just leaves us empty. But so does the reaction of the brothers. You see what they're saying? We didn't do anything wrong. It's a natural response to the evil they did. Tit for tat. You could hear me preaching today, and you could completely disagree with me. Just like people in Nashville will completely disagree. You hear one person, and it's the problem of Christians actually having a standard. Hear somebody else, and it, it's the problem of genetics, or it's the problem of this, or whatever. Everybody's got their opinion. Just like we have to wait 
for God's final statement of judgment to the final end in, in this story, so we have to wait for it in every story. And I am so thankful that he will make all things right. When he declares his judgment, there will be no objections. People will just say, yeah, that's right. Because it will be perfectly right. It will take into every consideration. Guiding principles. And again, I could say so much more. But here's some guiding principles. Do not let evil destroy your belief that God is good. Did you hear that? I don't know why he lets things like Nashville happen. I can't see the evil in it. But I'm telling you, if you let go of the fact that God is good, you have no hope in this world. Secondly, do not let the evil of others justify evil in you. Did you hear that? That's in the Romans verse. Do not be overcome with evil. That means don't let evil reside, come out of you. And that brings us to the third guiding principle. When you stand before God, when you stand before a holy God, and you will, it is the evil that you have committed that will matter. Not one person here will be saying, but, 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 but he did. You will stand before God. Do not let the evil of others cause evil in you. Fourthly, do not expect full justice in this world. Do not expect it. Oh, we can want it. We can hope that the authorities will do what's right as best they know how. But do not expect full justice in this world. At the same time, do not let present injustice destroy your confidence in God's justice. Just as God is good, so he is just. Sixth, do not ever be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Somebody wants to tarnish Jesus Christ in your presence, you just tell them, he is my only hope. Do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ in the cross. And then seventh, do good in the face of evil. You can't fix problems. You can't make it right. You think it's ever going to be right in the ones who are closest to that story? The scars, the pain, the suffering will just continue to go on. You can't fix that. Only God can fix that in the end. But you can, in small, little ways, choose to do good in your situation. You can love the person next to you. You can point them to Christ. You can call them to repentance. At the beginning of this sermon, I said you would have to ask two questions. How should I feel and how should I respond? Well, you should feel anger. You should feel sadness. You should feel frustration. But in those feelings should come other feelings. 
trust, hope, compassion, thankfulness that your God has actually dealt a death blow to evil in his son's death on the cross. And what should you do? Well, you should cling to Jesus, number one. Number two, you should fight against your own sin. Fight against it. You will not win every battle. Oh, remember, when I'm struggling with sin, and I still struggle with sin, I try to remind myself, this is the reason why God will judge the world, because of my sin. Cling to Jesus. Fight against your sin. Call others to Jesus. And seek to be a force of good. Amen.